Good morning. It's so good to be back with you today. The uh, text for this morning's message is Psalm 84. And we're not going to be able to look at the entire psalm. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 4 and 10 and maybe uh, referring to a couple others. But the text is Psalm 84, 1 through 4, verse 10. And then at the uh, end of the message, I do want to close with a passage from John chapter 2. So if you would go ahead and find John chapter 2 and might stick a copy of your bulletin in there and just be ready to turn to that at the end of the message. <laughs> Title of this morning's message is a, a passion for the house of God. Uh, we did touch on the idea or the picture of the church as the house of God last week. Um, this was not intended uh, to, to follow up with another message regarding the house of God, but so it is. We're going to look at the uh, the subject of the house of God as it is presented in Psalm number 84. And again, the title of the message is A Passion for the House of God. Um, most people, um, at least periodically, are passionate about something. There's something that they're really passionate about. It might be a thing, an activity, uh, another, another person. Um, that's okay, but of course, um, we need to be passionate about good things. Um, but even things that can be good, we can be passionate about them the wrong way. Uh, so we want to make sure that our passion is a, a holy and a righteous passion. And Galatians 4.18, Paul wrote, But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. So we need to be passionate about good things. Um, the author, the writer of Psalm 84, um, I think it probably was David, but it doesn't say. I'll allude to that a little bit later on. Uh, but the psalmist was passionate about a good thing. He was passionate about the house of God, and so should we. Let's go ahead and read those verses that I called out, verses 1 through 4 and then 10. Uh, beginning at the top, the, to the chief musician on an instrument of Gath, a psalm of the sons of Korah, which means that this, uh, not that the sons of Korah necessarily wrote the song, but whoever wrote it delivered it to them for the performance of it. And then it begins, how lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yea, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will be still praising you. And then drop down to verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much to be uh, gathered here today as your church. We thank you for every privilege that we have to come together as fellow believers. We thank you for the privilege of praying together and praising you through song and now opening up your holy book. And we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would bless this time, that he would bless the preaching of the word, that it may go forth in accuracy and faithfulness and simplicity and depth. And Lord, that your Holy Spirit would apply your word as is needed in, in each of our lives as individuals. We pray that you would bring conviction, 
that you would instruct and correct and rebuke and, and comfort us through your word, all to your glory and for our good. And we pray this in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, let me take just a few minutes um, in introducing the, uh, uh, or reviewing, I should say, since you're probably familiar with this, the idea of the tabernacle. Um, there in verse 1, the the word that is translated tabernacle. In the Hebrew, it's built off the word to dwell. In fact, some of the, some of, uh, the translations will, will translate this word dwelling or dwellings. It's actually plural in the, in the Hebrew. Um, the noun is almost always, in most translations, translated tabernacle. So let's talk about the tabernacle for just a moment um, as the house of God. Um, as you may remember, um, the, the tabernacle was that portable structure structure made out of tents which served as the central worship place of the ancient Israelites. When you go back to the book of Exodus and the people were brought out from under slavery in Egypt, God gave Moses um, uh, very detailed commands regarding the construction of the tabernacle, the the material that was to be used, um, the the decorations and artistry and the, the utensils and the furnishings. And again, they were very, very detailed and instructions and so they they put together the tabernacle and again it was it was it was basically a portable tent it could be taken down and moved with them to the next point and and then uh, put back up and uh, and and so forth um, again as I'd mentioned it was uh, it's actually in the plural here in verse one that doesn't mean that there was more than one tabernacle there was only one tabernacle and later one temple but what that's referring to is that it had different sections and sometimes those were referred to as separate tabernacles. Uh, for example, and I'm reading to you from the King James here in Hebrews 9, 2 through 3, it says, For there was a tabernacle made, the first, the first tabernacle, wherein was the candlestick or the lampstand and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. So uh, so you have the 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 the, the general tabernacle, which was called the sanctuary, and then there was another inner part called the Holy of Holies. And sometimes it was referred to as the tabernacles, but it's actually just one structure. And it was the central worship place for the Israelites, and it was primarily a place of offering and sacrifice. It was where the Israelites would bring their offerings and their animals to be to be sacrificed. And then you had that inner that inner tent or tabernacle, which was the Holy of Holies, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was was kept. And uh, I think most of you I don't have time to go into detail in the Ark of the Covenant, but if you remember, it was the, it was the box that held the Ten Commandments, the manna, and Aaron's Aaron's rod, and it had a likeness of to cherubim on the top. And God placed his special presence there. Um, in 2 Kings 19.15, it says, Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you are alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. Now, we know that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. There is no place that God is not. But there is some sort of symbolic representative presence of God there in the 
the Holy of Holies, on the, on the mercy seat on top of the ark between the cherubim. There's some sort of presence that is there that he is not present elsewhere. He is said to, to dwell there. So a special presence in the tabernacle and especially the Holy of Holies on top of the ark. So they constructed the tabernacle. They carried it with them through the wilderness wanderings. And then uh, they carried into the promised land under Joshua. It's at Shiloh for a while. And then King David comes along. He conquers Jerusalem. And then the tabernacle is taken up to Jerusalem on Mount Zion. And then later on, David's son Solomon, um, under the leadership of the Lord, has the temple built. So the temple became a permanent building. Uh, so basically a permanent tabernacle. So when, the, uh, when the, the Old Testament refers to the house of God, it is overwhelmingly referring to the tabernacle or the temple. Okay, let's move forward into the New Testament. And this is, again, all, all by way of an introduction. The tabernacle, if, if you'll remember was the center of the ceremonial sacrificial system. And through that, God was foreshadowing what would be necessary for the people to be forgiven. That's why you had the animal sacrifices. Ultimately, it foreshadows, it points to the coming of Christ and his dying on the cross as the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. So when Christ comes, he dies on the cross, he's resurrected, he ascends back into heaven. Now the purpose of the tabernacle and the temple has been fulfilled. It's what it was foreshadowing, the reality has now come. So it's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. And so now, under the New Testament, the house of God is the people of God in whom he dwells. You and I, are, as believers, are called the temple of God under the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says, do you not know, he's talking to the Corinthian church, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? There's that idea of tabernacle dwelling. Um, in 2 Corinthians 6.16, he says, For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In 1 Peter 4.17, the apostle writes, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first began at us, the house of God, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel? So you notice there, Peter refers to, to, to you and I, the people of God, as the house of God. So when you get to the New Testament, now you have a living temple of people in whom resides the Spirit of, of God. Just very quickly in passing, um, sometimes the house of God uh, does refer to heaven. Um, Jesus said in John 14, too, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place to you. So sometimes heaven itself is called the house of God because that's where he dwells, even though he's everywhere. Sometimes the coming kingdom is considered the dwelling or the tabernacle. Uh, Revelation 21.3, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men um, and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. So you have those, those ideas as well. And you could study Psalm 84 from any one of those standpoints. But for the purpose of the message today, I want us to focus on the historical context, which is the Old Testament tabernacle, but, but consider that we are now the tabernacle of God, the house of God, so that we can apply the principles that we learn of in Psalm 84. Uh, so whoever the writer was, I think it may have been David, doesn't say, but he had a passionate love for the house of God. 
and so should we. So I'm going to just uh, group all this together under two headings today. Uh, Number one, the beauty of the house of God, and number two, the blessings of the house of God. So first of all, let's look at the beauty of the house of God. He was passionate about it because it was so beautiful. Look at verse one again. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. How lovely, how, how beloved, how dear, how, how lovely. The psalmist loved the house of God. He loved the tabernacle. Why? Well, it's not because it was such an amazing structure from the outside. It really wasn't that amazing from the, the outside. Um, I've had the opportunity to visit two life-size replicas or recreations of, of the Old Testament tabernacle. And it's, it's really not that impressive from the outside, certainly not in size. It's actually a, a fairly small structure. Um, it, it reminds me, I've, I've heard people who have visited the Alamo out in Texas, and they can't wait to get there, this amazing structure where Texans won there, you know, was in the Battle of Independence from Mexico, and they get out to the Alamo, and it's this little bitty place. And it's just not all that impressive. Well, it's impressive because of what it stood for and what happened there. Um, In in a similar way, but much greater way, um, that applies to, to the tabernacle. And so when you move inside the tabernacle is where you begin to see the beauty of it. Now, physically, it was it was beautiful. It was very artistic with the most valuable of, of materials and the ark, the ark itself overlaid with gold. And even the ark was very small. It was a very, 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 very small box. Um, but the true beauty of the tabernacle was in what the tabernacle and its furnishing and its services and its sacrifice represented. Because it represented God's presence with his people. It represented his his holiness, his blessings upon the people, his covenant with Israel, and his provision for forgiveness. Because in the sacrifice of the animals, you saw the awful price that had to be paid for sin, the wrath that is on sin. Bible says that for without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, Hebrews 9.22. But then there is the provision for, for forgiveness. Again, all pointing to the coming of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. But because the, the tabernacle pictured these things, it was, it was lovely. It was beloved by godly Israelites those who had true faith in, in Jehovah. It was a vivid and powerful reminder of their special relationship with God and the provision that God had made and would make through Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the restoration of fellowship with God. Now, likewise, you and I, as, as the people of God under the New Testament, we ought to have a love for the house of God. We ought to have a love for the church we ought to have a love for the church uh, for very similar reasons. But that's uh, it's not always the case. It's possible to love a church for the wrong reasons or even um, inadequate reasons. There's some people that love this or that local church because they've got a lot of programs or they've got, a, an, they've got amazing facilities or, or uh, on, the, on the more, the, the less 
righteous side of it. Some people love a church because of the business connections they can make. Uh, sometimes you might have, you got a lot of godly businessmen, you have some ungodly, and they want to join the biggest church in town because they want to network for business. That's the wrong reason. Uh, so we, we can love a church for the wrong reasons or inadequate reasons, even through sentimentality. Um, especially down here in the Bible Belt, and I'm from the Bible Belt, but I imagine this might be true of other rural places. It's easy to love a church because that's where you, you grew up, or that's where your family or your ancestors worshipped, and they're, they're buried out in the graveyard, and you've got family history tied there. Uh, there is a little bitty church out in the country north of Dublin, Georgia, that has a special place in my heart. Uh, my great-great-great-grandfather was a chaplain during the Civil War and helped start that church, my great-grandparents are buried out in the graveyard. But I have to admit that it's more of a sentimental attachment for that church. I don't really know anything about the people who go there now. Uh, so there's nothing wrong with that. We ought to appreciate and be thankful for those kinds of things in our past. But that's not the kind of love that's being conveyed here. Um, we are to love the church because of what the church is, because of her true identity. Um, we've got to, to see her, her, her true beauty and what she truly is to have a true love for her. Um, the house of God is the people of God. First Timothy 3.15, I brought this one up last week. The house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So the, the godly man and woman sees the church as dear and lovely and beautiful because of, of the Lord and what the Lord has done for the people of the church. Um, let me read to you. You don't have to turn there, but let me read to you out of Ephesians chapter 5. And this is the section on marriage where we are taught marriage by comparing the relationship of the husband and wife to that of Christ and the church. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So we ought to love the church because the Lord Jesus laid down his life for her. Verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So see, we need to see the church as Christ sees the church. He laid down his life for us, for, for us, his people. He washed us with his blood. He continues to wash us through the process of sanctification as we go through this life. And one day he is going to present that church to him, his bride, without spot or wrinkle, pure, holy, and white. And so it's with eyes of faith that we look at the church this way, and therefore we love her. The church... The church is not very impressive from the outside. The world looking in at the church despises the church, at least true churches, despises and reviles and persecutes the church. We don't look like much right now, but we read what, we're, what we are and what we're going to be because of Christ, what he has done for us. Um, the hymn, The Church is One Foundation, it says, The church is one foundation, is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by spirit and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride, and with his blood he bought her, and for her life he died. So if, if Christ loves my fellow believers like that, I'm supposed to love my fellow believers like that. We're to love each other. We are the house of God. 
We are the dwelling of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And so if he loved the church like that, we ought to love the church. We ought to have a passion for the church. And God dwells in us as he did in the tabernacle. He dwells in us at the church in a way he doesn't dwell anywhere else. And so that alone beautifies the church and makes her lovely. Again, our, our true beauty will not be seen until, until Christ returns. Um, 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, when Christ comes back, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he, as he is. So there's this this beauty in the house of God, the church, and it will be fully revealed at the second coming. Now look at verse 2. My soul longs, yes, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Um, This is similar to the psalm that was read earlier, which does say it was from David. So that's kind of a hint that David may have been the one to, to write this. But he says, my soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. The courts would have been the, the area surrounding the tabernacle and the temple where the people would, would come. Remember, only the priest could go into the temple proper, the tabernacle proper. And only the high priest could go in the Holy of Holies. But it's like David or whoever wrote the psalm, He can't find words strong enough. He says, my soul longs for the courts of the Lord, even faints. I'm at the point of fainting because of my desire to be at the house of God. Now, this is another clue that it might have been David because it seems like he is prevented from going to the tabernacle. So it may have been that this was during the time that he uh, had had to flee from Saul and he and his men were out in the wilderness fleeing for their lives from Saul who wanted to kill him or may have been during the time that he had to flee from Absalom, but it seems like there is some occasion here where he can't get to the tabernacle. And so his soul just longs to be there. And, uh, and, and that's, that's how we ought to be in regard to gathering as the church. We ought to look at this hour, this hour right now, this time when we meet is the best time of the week, really and truly, For the people of God, Sunday morning ought to be the best time of the week. And then prayer meeting, whenever you meet for prayer meeting. But the the meetings of the church, it ought to be something that we we want to be there. And, uh, and, and, And even when we're providentially hindered from being there, and sometimes we are, sometimes we can't get to church. It might be sickness or family sickness or something else. But we ought to miss it badly like David did when he couldn't get there. Um, I've known uh, several military men that uh, when they went off into the military that uh, that they, they didn't they didn't meet other Christians, and they couldn't get to church. Now, there are chapel services, but those tend to leave a little bit to be desired. Um, I had one, one military man tell me, you were, you were doing really well if the chaplain was even saved. So a, a lot of times those are not even options for a genuine Bible-believing Christian. But uh, they said how they longed to get back to church. They missed it. 
And um, it, it ought not to be that kind of thing that makes us realize just how valuable uh, it is to be in church. We, we, just, we just need to want to be there and not take the privilege for, for granted. Now, uh, moving on to the second part of the verse, and this is a very important point. This is one that, that just... Um, I want to put an exclamation point by. He said, my soul longs for, even faints for the courts of the Lord. And then look at the next phrase. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Okay? So this is the point. Our desire, our passion for the house of God is rooted in, needs to be rooted in, a desire and passion for God himself. Far and away, our passion ought to be centered in God. So a passion for the house of God is rooted in a passion for God himself, a desire for God. John Piper's ministry is called what? Desiring God. That ought to be primary, a desire for God himself. So it's not so much about a place as it is a person, the person of God. Um, David said that uh, his... His heart and his flesh cry out for the living God. Now, as you know, in the New Testament, often flesh means that sinful part of us. That's not what he's talking about. What David is saying here is that my whole being just cries out, desires God. That's really what the first commandment's about. Mark 12, 30, uh, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. What is he saying? Love God with every, every part of you, every fiber of your being. And I think this was David's way of saying, when it says, my heart and my flesh cry out for God, he's just saying, my whole being, my whole being cries out for the living God, the living God. So what we find here is that the proper draw of us to, to meet as the church, to meet as the house of God, is supremely God himself. God himself. There's a lot of other great reasons to come. A lot of great reasons, but the greatest is the Lord himself. And uh, we, 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 we need to recognize that we, and I don't even know how to describe this, but hopefully you'll understand what I mean, is that we experience God in a greater way when we worship together. Or we are able to experience him in a way together that we're not able to when we're by ourselves. Should we, do, while we're by ourselves? Absolutely. You ought to be doing personal devotions and being having time with God. Absolutely. Primary, fundamental. But there is a way in which you and I experience God here together as the house of God that we don't in other contexts. Uh, Psalm 95, 6 says, and listen to the plurality here. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So don't ever let anybody tell you corporate worship is not in the Bible. It's, I can't believe somebody would even suggest that. We have repeatedly calls to worship. Oh, come, let us bow down. Let us worship. Let us kneel. Um, Let's skip down to verse 10 at this point. We're going to transition to the next point. They kind of bleed into each other here. We've been looking at the, the beauty of the house of God. Let's go ahead and consider number two, the blessings of the house of God, and just drop down for a moment to verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God 
than dwell in the tents of, of, of wickedness. Now, it literally says in the Hebrew, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand. It leaves it undefined. Um, but the, uh, the, the, the obvious implication here is a day in your courts is better than a thousand somewhere else. Some of the translations supply that. The New American Standard supplies outside better uh, than a thousand outside of your house. The ESV better than a thousand elsewhere. That's the idea here is that one day at the house of God is better than a thousand days elsewhere. Better than a thousand elsewhere. Think of all the desirable places. Think of the places that, uh, that you would like to be, and there's not necessarily anything wrong with them. Um, what, where are some of the places you would like to be? Some people would like to be in the beach. Some people like to be hiking in the mountains. Some people like to be doing a, a hobby, um, uh, sleeping in Sunday morning, going to a restaurant, an amusement park. Um, some of these are better places than others to be. But, but no matter what they are, even if they're perfectly okay, the attitude of the Christian ought to be, I'd rather spend one day at church than a thousand days doing those kinds of things. One of our elders frequently mentions, um, as you may know, uh, Grace Community Church, where Pam and I are members, we're fairly near Lake Lanier. And one of our pastors says, comments frequently about seeing on Sunday morning when they're headed to church, you got a lot of people pulling the boat down to the lake to go spend Sunday morning on the lake. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with the lake. God made lakes, and I believe he put them there for our enjoyments. Nothing wrong with owning a boat. All that's fine. But on Sunday morning, the desire of the Christian ought to be in church. The desire to be in the house of God, that, that we wouldn't be anywhere else. We wouldn't take a thousand days on the lake to miss one day of being in the the house of, of God. I'm afraid that most of us don't share David's view on that. And we need to ask God to help us to, to again, see the beauty of the house of God, and uh, not to mention the fact that it's a command, uh, and, and desire to be there. And David goes on to say, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the, the wicked. Um, love to, to sit here and talk about this uh, longer, but the idea seems to be uh, I would rather be serving just a menial position in church than to dwell in the tents of the wicked with all their wealth and fame and influence and power. I'd rather, I'd rather clean the church. I'd rather do anything in the church and be there than to dwell elsewhere, to be part of the wicked and all that they've got in this, this world. Well, jump back up to verse 3 now. And again, we're looking at the blessings. Something very poetic here. The psalmist says, Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my king and my my God. So it's it's as though the psalmist is, is envying the little birds who will would sometimes make their nests in the tabernacle. Um, at uh, at uh, our church down in Southwest Georgia, it was a very traditional church building, and so it had the four columns that upheld uh, the roof over the porch. So there's a porch area, and the, the the roof held up by four columns. Well, up on the top of those columns, part of the top of it was exposed. 
And every, it seems like every spring, uh, a, a, a pair of finches would make a nest on the top of that column. And it was way up there, and so you could go up under the porch of the church and look up there and see the little birds, and sometimes hear, you know, hear the birds in the nest. And it makes me think about this verse. So here, the, you know, there are certain species of birds that make their nests, their dwellings in human structures. And so apparently there were, uh, what, what does he say here, sparrows and swallows that would, would uh, light upon the tabernacle or maybe find a way to get in there and make a nest. And David envied them. He envies the little birds that get to go to the house of God. He envies them. He considers them blessed. Verse 4, and here's the main point, point number 2, blessed are those who dwell in your house, they will still be praising you. Now there's some scholars who think that uh, here he may be referring to the priests and Levites whose, whose ministry was to serve at the tabernacle and uh, in, the, in the temple, who, uh, those who had the responsibility and the privilege of serving there and officiating there. Um, Others think it might be those who lived near enough to the tabernacle or temple that they could they could get there there frequently, and I think there might be something to that. Um, but but I, I think the psalmist mainly has in mind those who dwell spiritually in his house, um, those who who love his house, even if they even if they were uh, like like Mary and Joseph who only got up there three times a year for the feast, they still love the temple, the house of God for what what it represents, and again. You and I are blessed to be part of the church because it means that we're saved. Um, the true church is made up of truly saved people, and that makes us part of the household of God. Ephesians 2.19 and 20 says this, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So when you repent of your sins and you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in him alone for salvation, his suffering and death and resurrection, you are adopted into the family of God. You become a son or a daughter of God. You become a child of God, and you become a a member of the household of faith, a, a member of his family. Um, we sometimes talk, talk about the church that we're a member of as our church home. And, and it really is. It's our home. It's our home. Now, we should be at home with all believers everywhere, uh, true believers, no matter what congregation they're a member of. But, of course, we have a special affection for our local church. Those are the, the, the believers that we interact with the most. And that's our home. That's our spiritual family. Um, and, and while it's true that we can worship anywhere, uh, we, 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 we should worship together as the household of God. Again, there's something special about worshiping with the other people of God. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let's, let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. To neglect to do so, of course, is disobedience. Um, the Bible commands us that we're to meet together. It says, do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together in the book of, of Hebrews. But we, if, we, if we're not committed to regular attendance, when we're able, again, acknowledging that sometimes we're not, but when we're able, um, we're, we're, 
we're failing to give God glory, and we're also forfeiting a blessing. There are blessings in the house of God for you to receive that you won't receive anywhere else, that you will not receive among any other group of people but the redeemed. David says, we're blessed. Verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house, happy, joyful, fulfilled, Um It doesn't mean life is just uninterrupted joy. Of course not. The Bible talks about in this life we have sorrow, grief, temptations, and trials, and all of those. The Bible is a very practical book and a realistic book. Sometimes, how many psalms that the the writer is in the depths of darkness and despair? But it's also very significant how he lifts himself up by thinking of the Lord. And, and looks to the Lord in faith. But there should be a joy in coming together as the church. Um, Psalm 122.1, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. You know, it used to be that uh, in times past, that when it was time for service to begin, the church bells would ring. And uh, that was very traditional. They don't, churches don't do that anymore. Not, and when I was a, a child, the little church that my family attended, um, they, had, they had speakers and they actually uh, uh, played a recording of bells. But it was the call to worship. And uh, it ought to be that that's a joyful sound. The bells are ringing. It's time to go to church. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. We're blessed And David said, they, those who dwell in your house, will still be praising you. So when we come together, we are to come together in part to praise the Lord. And we do that by by singing or uh, in less formal settings, maybe in a prayer meeting, sharing praises. Um, 1 Peter 2.5 says this, You also, as living stones, a stone is a dead thing physically, but we're the living stones that make up the temple. You also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13, 15, Therefore, by Him, by Christ, let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. You and I do not have to offer up literal sacrifices anymore. The Old Testament sacrificial system was fulfilled. We no longer have to bring lambs and calves and goats to be slaughtered. That's fulfilled in Christ. But we are to make sacrifices, and those sacrifices are sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving and and, and song. We're we're worshiping the Lord through these things, and it ought to be a joy to do so. Some of you may remember J. Vernon McGee. He was kind of an old-fashioned preacher from years past, and he's with the Lord now. But he said something one time in a message that really stuck with me. And it's very simple, but I want you to think about the implications. If you don't like to worship God, you wouldn't like heaven anyway. If you don't like to worship God, you wouldn't like heaven anyway. I.e., if you don't like to worship God, you're probably not on your way to heaven. You're probably not saved. Because the true child of God, the people of God, should want to worship God. Now again, we're not talking about terms of absolutes. 
There's times you and, I, you and I get up on Sunday morning and we know it is a chore to get to church. We admit that. In the weakness of our flesh and temptation, there are times where it's a struggle. We admit that. Let's just all acknowledge that. And there are times I feel more worshipful than I do at other times. There's times my heart can be lukewarm and cold. So we all acknowledge that. But by and large, a truly saved person does want to worship God and praise God. And so if a person doesn't like to worship God ever and is not drawn to it, that person is not going to heaven, is not saved. That's what we do in heaven. I don't know what all else we're going to do, but I do know we are going to praise God and we're going to be in delirious joy doing that. We're going to praise Him. That's when we, when we see pictures of heaven in Scripture, like in Revelation. What do we see? They're, they're falling down in joyful worship. They're just overcome by the presence of the Lord. And so uh, we're, we're having a little taste of that here and now when we gather together as the, as the house of, of God. It's supposed to be like a little piece of heaven on earth, a foreshadow. Now, we know that sometimes church life can be anything but. When you read the letter to the Corinthians, both of them, you know there was division there and, 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 uh, and envy and abuse of spiritual gifts and, and the Lord's Supper. And, and I just kind of gather that there wasn't a lot of joy in those gatherings. Uh, but there should have been, though. Paul wrote to correct those things. So if a church is, is experiencing um, sin and not dealing with it or, or division or disunity, um, it can often feel like anything but heaven. But the point is to deal with those things, to repent and, and to seek unity and, and, and to restore that fellowship so that it doesn't inhibit our worship and our, our joy. So, we've got to keep our eyes on the Lord. That'll always help us since, again, we're a bunch of saved sinners and we often do act in the flesh. We're all struggling. And so we need to keep our eyes on the Lord. The desire for church needs to be rooted ultimately in the desire for the Lord, but also desire for the church and love for the church is based on remembering what the church is, the people of God, those that Christ laid down his life to save, and remember what we're going to be when, when he comes back and glorifies us. So, we are the temple of the living God. We are the house of God. Again, 2 Corinthians 6.16, For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So that's our identity. You want to know what the house of God is? It's us. It's all the redeemed of the Lord together the house of God, and we ought to have a passion for it. Let's end by looking at John chapter 2, 13 through 17. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. You remember Christ went to the, up to the temple and he saw that, uh, that men were using it um, as a means to make money, very irreverent. It says in chapter 2, verse 13, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. 
Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal, passion, zeal for your house has eaten me up. That's a quote from Psalm 69. So that psalm was a, was a prophecy of Christ. The zeal of his father's house had eaten him up. He was consumed by a passion and a zeal for the house of God. And you and I ought to do so as well. May God give us an increased passion and zeal for him and his house. And if there's someone here who is not yet a member of God's family. Listen, you don't, you're not born into God's family. You're born again into God's family. God, is, God created all of us, but God is not the father of all of us. The Bible says that as many as received him, meaning Christ, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. To become a true child of God, you must recognize that you have sinned against God and that his wrath is on sin, on your sin. But God is gracious and loving and merciful, and he has made provision for the forgiveness of sins through Christ, his son. And Christ died on the cross in the place of sinners. He was our substitute. He bore the wrath of God that should have been on his people for their sins. He took our sin on himself and died as our substitute that we might be forgiven. And he rose again from the dead. And Scripture says, if we will repent, and if we will trust Christ alone for salvation, believing him for who he is, the Son of God, the sinless Son of God, and trusting in what he did on the cross for us, not what we can do ourselves, the Bible says that you will be forgiven. You will be saved. You will be made part of God's family. And you will spend forever in the presence of the Lord and joy in His eternal home. May God give you grace to repent and place faith in Christ. Amen.